Good morning. My name is Chet. I'm one of the pastors here. If you will, grab a Bible and go to Malachi chapter 3. We are uh, finishing up our series in the book of Malachi today. We're finishing up our Give series. This is the last Sunday morning this year that we'll meet together. Next week, we will meet uh, in the evening for a Christmas Eve service at 530. Um, so this, we're, we're wrapping up a whole lot of things today. Um, and as we come to the end of Malachi, we are going to have our attention directed to the end of all things. You see, in the Christmas season, we celebrate as Christians uh, the season of Advent, which is the appearing or the arrival of God in humanity, that he incarnated, that he took on flesh to join us and to redeem us and to rescue us, and we celebrate that during this time of year. We uh, remember that on Christmas Day. And I, I do want to point out that the Bible does not say what day of the year Jesus was born. So I've heard people before say, you know, I found out that, that uh, Christmas isn't even when Jesus was born, so I quit believing the Bible. And it's like, well, the Bible never said that. It just is a traditional thing this time of year that we focus our attention on and remember that as a, a thing that the church does. But we don't know exactly when he was born. But this is when we focus on the incarnation that Jesus has come to rescue his people and that his life and death and resurrection redeem us from our sin. And that's known as uh, the coming of Christ or the first coming. And then there's the second coming when he returns to judge the world and rescue his church. And the prophet Malachi is going to turn our gaze to that this morning. And so if you will, let's pray and then we'll uh, begin to read together. Lord, we ask for your help. We ask for ears to hear mental clarity supernatural focus on something that is eternally urgent. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you look at Malachi chapter 3, we're going to read the section we studied last week together because it uh, is setting up what Malachi is going to say this morning. He's going to be responding to, what he's, to this um, accusation that the people have made, been making. And so we're going to look at this. He says, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? Verse 14, you have said it is vain to serve God. Vain meaning it's a waste, it's, it's dumb, has, has no uh, result. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or his walking in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. That's the accusation that what we're going to see in a moment he's responding to. He's actually going to use that phrasing, the arrogant and the evildoer. Verse 16, it says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. There's this teaching in the scriptures that God keeps a record and that there will be books opened on the last day, and there will be a distinction made between those who belong to him and those who don't. That's what it's referring to here. That God recorded those who feared him. Verse 17. They, this is God speaking, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession 
and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. There's going to be a distinction made. And he says there's going to be a distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Now, this distinction that is made, we're going to see in just a moment, is as distinct as any two groups can ever be. The gap between these two groups is infinitely, eternally massive. There's a fixed gulf between the two that cannot be bridged. This distinction that's going to separate all of human history and all of humanity is going to cut right through. Just as Jesus Christ uh, splits up our reckoning of time that we have before Christ and the year of our Lord, when Jesus comes, just as he does that, he's actually going to do that with all of human history, that there's going to be a dividing line between those who serve the Lord and those who don't, between the righteous and the wicked. When, um, when my wife and I had our first son, we were in the hospital, and we had had our son for, like, in our care for, like, an hour. And I have never, like, held a baby, cared for a baby, tended to a baby, ever. And then I just had hours to do that with. Like, I held my niece one time, and I was like, neat, take it back. I, I actually had had people before be like, here, hold my baby. And I just said, no, <laughs> which is fun to watch a mom be like, but it's like, why are you handing your baby off anyway? You keep the baby. It's yours. Don't make me hold it. They, if I drop it, like this is, you know, I just, it just, you keep it. So I'd had this baby for like an hour. He was smaller than like a peewee sized football. I, I did not know what to do with him. I'm holding him and he like gurgles, kind of spits up into his own mouth and begins to choke. So I'm holding a one-hour-old baby, and he's choking. And I say to my wife, he's choking, call the nurse. She's in a hospital bed. She has a button that will call a nurse. She presses the button. Now, I don't remember word for word what she said, so I'm going to paraphrase. <laughs> and she's not here. She's in Kid City. So what I'm going to paraphrase is wildly accurate. <laughs> she presses the button. Boop. Yes. That's how nurses respond, whatever. This is the nurse. I don't know what she said. My wife says, um, yes, if, uh, if you have time. <laughs> if it's not a bother. Um, when you get a chance. I said, not when you get, like, I'm like... This has already taken way too long. You need two words, baby choking. Like, that's it. That's all we needed. Um, when you get a chance. And I don't know if it's that she couldn't see his face or she was still on some, like, pregnancy drugs or if she just can't jump the hurdle of being, like, a polite southerner. I don't know. <laughs> Any and all of those things. But I do distinctly remember the nurse being surprised when she finally got the piece of information because nothing in the conversation had led up to the, the urgency that was needed at the end of it. Our baby's choking. She was like, oh, yes. They hustled down there, flipped him over, did a thing that I learned how to do later, which is help them 
You don't hold them backwards if they're choking. You flip them over. I was just staring at him like, I don't know, dude. Flipped him over, got him okay, handed him back to me. And I was like, okay, I took note of how to do that. When a situation is tense, when a situation is life or death, when a situation is urgent, you want clarity. You want urgency. You want action. You want to focus up. And when the Bible speaks about the end of all things, when we step into eternity, what happens to our everlasting soul, we ought to want clarity. This is something that you ought to want to know definitively the answer to what God says about this subject. Because there are moments in your life where you wish, I wish I could have a second chance. I wish I could go back and redo that. I did not handle that well. I feel like I had a window to have acted properly or spoken properly. I wish I had a chance to go back and fix that. And there is not a single moment in your life that has the amount of urgency and intensity and long-lasting nature other than the decision that you will make about what happens to your soul for all of eternity. And there will be many on that day who wish they could go back for another chance to have heard this, processed this, thought about this, responded to this, and there will be no other chance. And so we ought to take seriously what the prophet of God says next as God speaks through him. He says this, chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant... And all evildoers, so he's using their words from earlier, will be stubble. Bits of dry wood and grass that will be burned up. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. So the Bible teaches that there is a day coming, a day of judgment that is burning like an oven when evildoers and arrogant will not escape. They will be left with nothing, neither root nor branch. They're gone. That this day of judgment will uh, capture all of them. He says that the arrogant and the evildoers, they taunt God and they escape. He says, no, there's a day coming when they will not escape. Now, if you're not familiar with Christianity, or if you were talking to someone who's not familiar with Christianity, or not familiar with the Bible, and didn't care anything about this, and you told them that there's a day coming when God will judge evildoers, I think the general response would be, good, fine. Even if they don't believe what you believe, when you say that, it's like, that's fine. If there is a God, he should do that. The reason our general response to that would be, well, good. It's because I don't include myself in the category of evildoer. Sounds like someone Batman fights. And I just think if Batman lived in Columbia, he would leave me alone. Like, I just, I just don't think that I'm an evildoer. And so I think in general, people think I'd love for God to judge evil. If there is a God, that's one of the things he should do. Honestly, I'd like to give him some tips because he's got some things that I want him to judge. Like, that's in general our attitude there. Now, if you're a little more thoughtful, you might ask the follow-up question of, how does he define that category? Which is a good question for you to ask. 
That is a good follow-up question to try to understand how does the Bible define evildoer. But as we look at this this morning, I want us to focus in on this other category because I think it's very helpful for us to understand what's actually happening on that day. And that day is a real day that is coming. When all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. Who is the arrogant in God's reckoning? You see, there are those who are doing evil. They're maliciously rebelling against God. The truth is the New Testament says that we're all pretty much in that category. But the arrogant are those who believe that they don't need God. They don't need to submit to him. That's fine. If he's real, cool, he can judge the evil. But the idea that I need him, that I'm supposed to surrender, that I'm supposed to ask for forgiveness, that I'm supposed to live my life in light of him and what he has for me and what he wants for me, the idea of the arrogant are those who have rejected God. Some intentionally, you'll hear people make arguments like, well, if there is a God and there is a day of judgment, then I've got some questions for him on that day. Yeah, that's arrogant. I saw something online recently that said, well, God may judge you, but don't worry, his sins outnumber yours. And a bunch of people had posted underneath there, what a great quote. I'm writing that down. That's wonderful. How true. That's, that's arrogant. But there's also an arrogance that just treats God as unimportant as you as self-sufficient, as you as the pinnacle of all creation, that there is no God and that humanity and our reasoning and our thoughts are the top of everything and that we're to decide for ourselves what is right and wrong and good and bad. That's arrogant. And like someone in our justice system who chooses to represent themselves in court while knowing nothing about how the court works, it's going to go very poorly that all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be destroyed on that day. That there is a day of reckoning. Verse 2 says, but for you who fear my name. All right, so this was not written primarily as a warning to those who don't fear the Lord. It was written to the people of God who do fear the Lord as an encouragement. But I want to point something out. This idea, this line that comes through between fearing the Lord and not fearing the Lord, it calls for humility. So do you want to know someone else who's included in the arrogant? The Pharisee. The, the religious person who says, I'm one of the good ones. I... God owes me. I've served. I've worked. I've read. I've studied. I've been there. I've done the stuff. I gave during the gift project. I'm one of the good ones. I serve in Kid City twice last month. If anybody's in heaven, it's me. That somehow God owes you, that somehow you've earned it, that somehow you have the credentials or the resume, that's arrogance. So it's not just those who've rejected God, but it's also going to be some people who've been very, very good but in a way that declares that God owes them because they're one of the good religious people rather than someone who submitted and surrendered and asked for mercy. That's what fear looks like here. We would go to the Lord and say, I need mercy. I need rescue. I need help. 
If you don't do this work, if Jesus didn't come and, and be righteous in my place and die in my place, then I don't have any hope. I'm surrendering. I need help. I need forgiveness. It's all on you. That's this picture. So church family, if that's you, if you've trusted in the Lord and surrendered to him, not working on your religious resume to present to him so that he owes you, and not sitting here and saying, I don't really need God. That's good for other people, but I don't need that. But if you've genuinely said, I trusted Christ to pay for my sin, to rescue me, to atone for my, to welcome me, and he's my only hope, then this is actually spoken by the prophet to you. Because it says, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. But for you who fear my name, verse 2, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. That day that comes burning like an oven for the wicked, for those who belong to Christ, healing dawns. The sunlight that crests the horizon on that day does not scorch or dry out or burn, but there is restoration and healing. The reason that happens, the reason that the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings is because the sun, S-O-N, of righteousness has already risen with healing for those who would trust in him. That those who place faith in Jesus, ultimately when he returns, as he's bringing forth the full consummation of what he has accomplished for us by faith, by grace, through faith, through his work on the cross. That he's accomplished for us. And so it's a day of healing. Everything that is physically wrong with you, everything that is mentally and emotionally broken, for those who are in Christ, is fixed. Battles with depression, anxiety, fear, doubt, years of laboring in physical and mental pain, working to submit to the Lord and follow him and try to overcome what's been done to us by sinful, wicked people what's been caused by our own shortcomings and failures and rebellions and what's just burned into our flesh through the brokenness of sin. There's a day when the sun rises and that's gone. There's a day when the king returns and everything is set right. There's a day coming that will inaugurate endless days for those who've trusted in Christ to be restored and welcomed and healed and brought into a land where there is no sorrow or sadness or tears. I love this next verse. Oh, no, the next part of this same verse. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Who just got excited? Have you, have you ever seen calves leap? It is the goofiest looking thing. They're not designed for it. 
cows aren't supposed to do a lot of jumping. This is why we don't do like cow racing. We do bull riding, but that's how calves jump. If you've ever watched bull riding, where they jump feet first, then the feet have to come back down and their back feet come up. Like they don't quite ever really fully get off the ground. It's hard for them to do. But calves and cows, you can Google this, will jump when they are excited. Goofily. But they'll jump when they're excited. If you've kept them all pinned up for a while and you let them all out back in the grass, they will one by one come out. I watched a video of this. These cows coming out one by one and they'd walk out into the grass and then they would jump and then the next one would walk out in the grass and then it would jump. And they all just were so excited. You know that humans do this too? That we jump when we're excited? We're all used to it. But you know, we do that. I, I love football. There are certain things that happen in football that will automatically make me shoot up out of my chair. I can't help it. I will, I will just jump. As soon as certain things happen, I will already be, I'll be out. I'll be up. If you watch people in their excitement, there are times we get so excited. Adult human beings get so excited that we just take off running. Have you seen this? Like they win a thing and then they just run through the field, their arms out like they're an airplane or something. Y'all, what this is saying is that the day that Christ returns, the church loses it. And we're jumping and we're running and we're singing and we're clapping and we're shouting. And the celebrations we've seen on earth, the best buzzer beater we've ever seen, the best showcase we've ever seen on The Price is Right, the best person who's ever been released from 40 years of prison has nothing on what that day looks like when the church has Christ shine on us in glory and we all start shouting and singing and running and leaping because the day has come when everything is restored and our kings come back and there is joy untold. Praise the Lord. That day is coming because Christ came to rescue a people for himself. And if we trust in him, he will one day return and everything will be restored. And it is a day of joy and rejoicing for those who belong to him. And you, verse three, shall tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. As the church runs and leaps and jumps, they tread down the wicked. Caught up in joy, caught up in the enraptured grace and glory of Christ, rescued and redeemed, it's a day of victory. So often, the way the world seems to work is that the meek are trampled. Those who are seeking to do what is right and good are, are underfoot. That the wicked and the powerful and the, the violent rise. But Jesus says the meek will inherit the earth. And Malachi says there's a day of victory coming. When those who have trusted in the Lord, surrendered to him, walked in fear of the Lord, humbly before him, tread down the wicked in their joy. There's a song we used to sing in the church I grew up in, and it would say, it was, um, when we all get to heaven, and it would say, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be 
when we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. And that's what this is. The distinction on that day could not be clearer. There could not be a wider gap between being ash and being enraptured in delight. Charles Spurgeon was a pastor in England, and he said, when it comes to talking about judgment and eternity and heaven and hell, that we need clarity, that dressing it up in fancy words doesn't help. He said, if he saw a house on fire, and he looked and said, I believe the operation of combustion is proceeding yonder. That wouldn't help. He said, but if he pointed and said, fire, that would help. As clearly as I can say it, without Christ, without trusting in him to pay for your sin, you will pay for your sin. And on that day, you'll long for this one to make a different decision. But church family, on that day, our best day on earth be a distant memory of brokenness because of how good and glorious everything is to come. This was written as an encouragement to those who were to belong to the Lord. Look at verse 4. He says, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Remember means not just to think about them, but to keep them. His, here's his encouragement. They said that it's working out for the wicked. It's working out for the evil. It's working out for the arrogant. They get away with it. They enjoy life. Everything's going well for them, but it's not going well for us. And he says, there's going to be a day when all of that is e eternally reversed. And then he says, so hold on. And so church family, hold on. Walk in hope and obedience as you follow Jesus, because I know that there's somebody in here right now who's thinking, I wish I could just give up Christ and pursue this other thing because I'd be so much happier. Everybody else I know is living this, pursuing this. They have this. They don't worry about these things, and they're happy. They're fine. They're free. And I feel so much like I'm having to fight my flesh daily. I'm having to fight against who I really am. Yeah. Because who we really are so often is an absolute rebellion against the Lord that we do at times have to fight tooth and nail against our sin. But what Malachi says, what God says through Malachi is it will be worth it. Don't lose heart. Don't lose hope. Don't let go. Verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So this is God speaking through Malachi. I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Elijah was a prophet. 
who had already existed, prophesied, spoken on behalf of God to the people of Israel. He was taken up by angels into heaven. You can read about him in First and Second Kings. Malachi is saying that he's not going to be the last prophet, but Elijah is going to come. One's going to come that's going to take up the same role and speak with authority from God. Now, there's 400 years between Malachi and when this happens. But this prophecy has already come true. That before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, that Elijah will come. Well, Elijah has already come. It says this is what he's going to do. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So Elijah's role, when he comes, when this prophet comes, what he's going to do is he's going to call for a turning. He's going to call for a repentance. He's going to call for a restoration. And this picture of hearts of fathers to children and children to fathers is that one of the most destructive things that happens in sin is that one of the relationships that's meant to be the sweetest, actually meant to give a picture of what God is like and how his people are supposed to be towards him as a father to children. And if we're honest, that relationship is one of the most twisted, broken, and personally hurtful relationships that we can point to all around us. Either children rebelling against good fathers or fathers that should have been being good fathers wickedly harming their children. And there's this picture of a restoration that's going to happen, a turning that's going to happen when this prophet comes. He says, lest, I mean, or else, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Meaning there's going to be an opportunity for repentance, an opportunity for turning. Otherwise, everyone's destroyed. So who is this prophet Elijah? It's a good question. I'm glad you asked. Matthew 11, Jesus answers that question. He says this. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, meaning the whole Old Testament rolls up to John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So he's fulfilled that prophecy, and he's the one who was promised to come before the great and terrible day of the Lord, and it's happened. All the law and prophets speak until John. It rolls up to John. And John is a changing, some sort of something is going to happen now. So look at Matthew chapter 3. Let's see what John prophesied. Which if you're in the book of Malachi, just go like two pages. You're right there. Matthew 3 is right next, right next door. Verse 11, this is John. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. So John came asking for a turning, for repentance, for people to turn from their sin. But then he says this, But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He's talking about Jesus. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. Meaning that the one who is to come is not just a prophet like Elijah, not just a prophet like John the Baptist, not just a prophet like Malachi, but he's the one who owns the barn and owns the wheat and owns the threshing floor. He's the king. And that's Jesus. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. If you believed that the idea of a day of judgment was just an Old Testament idea, and that Jesus somehow undid that, no, Jesus is the one who does that. He's the one who ultimately brings the separation. And our hope is in him and him alone. The distinction made on that day is, do you belong to Jesus or not? And there is no third category. Jesus says there are sheep and there are goats. There are good fish and bad fish. There is wheat and chaff or wheat and weeds. It's always two categories. But the wonderful news is that Jesus came. He came to rescue us. He came to pay our debt. He came to make us righteous through his work. And it's not about what we do. We're not to join the arrogant in, in declaring our good works so that God will clap for us and give us a gold star. We're to join the calves who run free because of how good Jesus is. So church family, let's celebrate today that there is a day coming and let's hold on with hope and let's tell as many people as we possibly can how good he is. And if you have not humbled yourself before the Lord, do that today. Ask him to forgive you, to rescue you, and to keep you. Do not harden your heart and turn from him and fight against it. Do not stand bold-faced and arrogant in the midst of your sin saying, I'm fine without him, but surrender and ask for mercy and receive it and join all of those who've been rescued by Jesus in celebration for all of eternity. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. Thank you that you forgive sinners or else it would be a decree of utter destruction. Thank you that you came to rescue and to redeem and that we get to celebrate a hope that we have secured in Christ, not accomplished by us. And Lord, I ask for the work of your spirit to draw people to yourself, that you might be glorified and that they might repent of sin. They might ask for forgiveness. They might ask for hope. They might ask for mercy. They might ask for grace. They might ask for life because all of those things are granted freely to the glory of Christ through his marvelous work and your wonderful love and eternal goodness to those who will ask. So may we humble ourselves and ask. And Lord, may all of us who long for the day of joy and delight in your glorious kingdom, when you rise in righteousness and bring about healing, Lord, may we hold on in the midst of trial and difficulty, and may we look to the horizon for the sun to rise. We love you, Lord. May we celebrate well today. In Jesus' name, amen. The band's going to come back up, and we're going to sing.
and celebrate together.